Kapalapa. All right. All right. <clears throat> so, as we know, as a guy mentioned last night, there's really, well, I heard him say this. I don't know if he actually he said it. Um, that there's actually many different ways of recognizing the truth, of understanding how things are, of our minds coming to freedom. There isn't only one way. And the Buddha, in, in, in the suttas, in the texts, there's various ways that the Buddha describes the way we suffer, what the mind that's free from suffering is like, how to recognize what that free mind is. And so tonight I want to talk about a very basic one, different from, from last night, and that's just I want to explore together the experience of craving, which is really one of the most basic um, things that the Buddha spoke about, making it the second noble truth, the cause of dukkha. But he said, one of his statements, that the sublime truth has been discerned by the Tathagata, meaning himself, namely liberation of heart of mind through non-clinging. So that's a very powerful, very sweeping statement that he's discovered the liberation of mind, of heart, through non-clinging. And so I want to explore this, is that it's not, as I'm talking about tonight, non-clinging is not some state that one achieves but it's rather a moment-to-moment activity of mind, because mind is a moment-to-moment activity. So right now I better define how I'm using mind tonight. And I'm using it in uh, mind as the moment-to-moment arising of a moment of consciousness together with the mental factors that come with it. The, The word that's used in Pali is chitta. So there's a moment of consciousness arising, and it's together with, um, the, like the, the aggregates will all be there, perception, vedna, feeling tone, sankaras, all the other mental experiences, perception, and consciousness. And so every moment of consciousness, there's perception, there's vedna, and there's all the different mental factors that make it wholesome or unwholesome. Like there could be mindfulness, there could be wisdom, there could be metta, there can be craving. There can be aversion, there can be delusion, there can be um, equanimity, right? And whole ones mixed together. So when I'm saying mind, I'm really referring to chitta and what's in it, and that this is arising and changing from moment to moment, which thank God. Because if it was steady state, there would be no practice. Can you imagine if you just had the same mind state for your whole life? But that's what you're craving, isn't it? You're craving some mind state you maybe touched once or you made up, you never even had it, and you're craving it. That's what enlightenment's going to be like, and it's going to just stay like that forever, right? We're so deluded. So I want to talk about craving because it's not we who's deluded. That's what craving, that's one of the effects when craving is present in the mind and we don't recognize it, which is, let's face it, a lot, um, not all, but a lot, it colors our perception. It, we see, we recognize, we recognize what's happening inaccurately. 
we build our descriptions of ourself and the world on that. And then we keep on, we don't, we don't see the craving. We keep wanting whatever the thing is. And we just, we, we just get further and further from any sense of harmony with what is, because we don't even know what is. So when the Buddha talks about discerning, discerning the heart and mind of non-clinging, he didn't say creating the mind of non-clinging, recognizing it. And so when craving and its corollary, which is aversion, and of course delusion, because craving doesn't arrive, arise without delusion, when those aren't present in a moment or in a series of moments, that's, that's what mindfulness is helping us see. Then when there's a more steady moments of non-delusion, the potential is there as the conditions for wisdom to arise. Wisdom is another mental state. And when wisdom arises, perception is accurate. When perception is accurate, when we, for lack of a better word, recognize accurately, in that moment, for that moment, craving just releases because it doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a strategy that doesn't work. But because we don't turn around and look at it and really recognize how it's manifesting and how it's not working and how it thinks it's working, you know, how, what it's doing, because we don't really explore it, but we kind of let it run the show so often, we don't see that it doesn't work. We think, I have to somehow get rid of all this craving, and I'm so deluded, and I'm so hopeless, and the more I practice, the more craving I see, or aversion, just the flip side, or delusion. I see so much more. I'm so much worse. There's no way I'll ever get rid of all this craving. It's just a mountain, 10,000 mountains, you know, of craving. There's, it's hopeless. How many moments of non-craving have I had? Do they match how many moments of craving I've had? You know, and stuff like that. Luckily, it, it doesn't work like that. It's just this close, right? A moment of non-craving accurately. Oh. In that moment, craving doesn't make sense. So that's kind of the spirit I hope we can look at it in. This is really bringing wise attitude, satipanya. So Ajahn um, Buddhadasa, the Thai monk, I think I mentioned him, to talk about sati, mindfulness, panya, wisdom. He would talk about satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, at the sense door, at the moment of mindfulness, the moment of perception. So there's hearing, Mindfulness and wisdom at the sense door, satipanya, recognizes things as they are. Recognizes sound as sound, for example. So bringing wise attitude, this recognizing the quality in the mind, in the moment that's observing, wise attitude is just interested in seeing what's happening. It's what we've been talking about the whole time. Can we bring that attitude to exploring the experience of craving and its stronger um, moving into grasping or clinging when it's present, instead of hating it or missing it or loving it. Let's just, let's just see what it is, how it manifests, how it works, what's the effect in the heart, in the mind, in my actions. And in that moment, when satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, right attitude, a moment of mindful awareness, recognizes, oh, craving is like this. In that moment, craving has just become the next mental object, the next sankhara. It's not a problem. And I'm just talking experientially now, not theoretically. 
experientially, it's as if in those moments, oh, that's craving. It feels like this. It's, it really is an object. It's as if the awareness, the satipani, is recognizing it, and the craving itself is not functioning then as a hindrance. It's not really coloring. We're seeing it. So in that moment, there's a, of the, the chitta, the mind, is clear. It's pure. There might even be wisdom. Oh, look at craving. It's like that. And it doesn't go anywhere. It's not like, get out the hammer. Craving is like that. That's not satipanya. That's aversion. Flip side of craving, the fear. It's, oh, look at craving. Oh, look at wisdom. Oh, look at hearing. Oh, look at thinking. It's simply another arising experience. To bring that, that quality of awareness, mindfulness, interest to it when we can. And when we can't, we notice that. So, craving when it's seen through, when it releases like that, the in a moment, I'm just talking about a moment, that releasing of craving is what's referred to as renunciation. And I think it's kind of odd in our, in our culture when we read about the craving or wanting desire. Let's... Instead of craving right now, I'm going to say desire because that makes it more confusing. And I know, no, I'm doing it on purpose because one of the problems a lot of people have, and I've heard questions to that here, is desire is a word in English that covers a lot of a broader, a lot of different mental states. The word tana for craving is very specific, and so I'll get to that in a minute. But when we think of desire, so many times people think, well, desire, it has like a pleasant connotation almost. You know, desire has the promise it's going to make us happy. That's why we liked it. People say, well, how can I live without desire? Why would I want to? So desire almost has the desire and the pleasant and getting things we like. And that has a sense of, you know, somehow connected with happiness. Renunciation, not so much. (laughs) See, you're laughing. Why? You know, what do we think of renunciation? Because it's actually, the truth is, I'm putting this out as something for you to explore. You know, we're not into you believing stuff. The truth is, it's just the reverse. But renunciation, or nekama is the Pali, doesn't mean this kind of dry, aversive, shut everything out of my life. Renunciation doesn't mean with aversion, throwing things away. Renunciation, remember, in, in, this, in the Eightfold Path, wise intention is the second step where the intention of greed under wisdom naturally changes to renunciation, which is the, it's really not even, I don't like letting go, because letting go sounds like I'm letting this go. Too much me, too much pushing. But it's like the wanting just stops. It just dissipates because it doesn't make sense. And in its place, there's actually the peace of just being as we are in the moment, or the peace of simplicity. Renunciation as an outer form, the effect or how it manifests, that can have a lot of different, a lot of different uh, manifestations. When I'm talking about renunciation here, I'm not talking about the outer form. I'm talking about the inner um, intention, motivation, wise intention. When the clinging releases, the renouncing of that clinging, it may or may not be a renouncing of the particular object. That's not really the point. It's the clinging dissipates. And what we're left with is peace, 
actually. And you can have the outer form that looks like real renunciation and be riddled with craving. Like someone asked um, one of my teachers, Tejaniya, they say, we're saying, oh, you became a monk. He, he did most of his practice as a householder. So he's been a monk only about 15 years, which in Burma is unusual because most of the Sayadaws were monks since they were seven. You know, they don't have so much clue about really what it's like to live a household life. But he does. He's been through a lot of stuff. I won't go into it now. But anyway, so some said, oh, he became a monk because, you know, the renunciation and the freedom from craving, and they were like being really idealistic. And he just cracked up and he said, you know, it's not like that. You know how many different things you crave in, your, in, in a lay life? There's so many different things to crave. So you become a monk, and there's only two things you can crave, but you put all that same amount of craving into those two things. <laughs> and, I, you know, definitely I've met monks and nuns who can do that. Not all, but... So it's kind of reversed, just our, our society's way of looking at it. Both of it, the, the, the reverse, the thinking of desire is leading us to happiness, renunciation is being, you know, the way of, of dried up, depressing Theravada Burmese Buddhists. Um, mostly it's because the emphasis is on the object. Without desire, I won't get nice things or states or whatever. With renunciation means I have to live without whatever it is you think is so important. And the whole problem with craving and the freedom from it has nothing whatsoever to do with the objects. Craving is a quality in the mind. It's a mental quality. And the suffering of it is the effect that it has in the mind. I'm not seeing it on the basic level of how it keeps us running in samsara, wanting this, wanting that. And on the deeper level, the fact that it colors, it distorts perception. And as long as we're locked in craving, even craving enlightenment doesn't matter what, the craving itself hides the peace that's actually available. It's so poignant. And it doesn't matter if you're craving like, you know, pizza for lunch, or you're craving that incredibly blissful state that you had yesterday. If you're looking at the object and not at the quality in the mind, we're missing the whole picture. Okay, so back to a little bit of vocabulary. This word craving, I'm using craving deliberately to, to go with the word tanha in Pali, which is the word that the Buddha uses when he says the second noble truth. This is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha, which is, as I said the other night, usually translated suffering. It is this craving, just tanha, which produces renewal of being, which is bound up with delight and lust, and seeks, another translation, seeks and finds pleasure now here and now there. And I really like it. So you really say, yes, it seeks pleasure. It finds pleasure here and there. <laughs> Namely, and these are the three kinds, craving for sense pleasures, and that one's obvious, craving for existence, craving for being, and craving for non-existence, which I just briefly say, craving for existence, the main way you can see that in our experiences, and this is really, you can see it in meditation retreats, it's the craving, the tana for 
a better state, a different state. And I mean, I just see this so much in my practice. Sense pleasures is obvious. Craving for a better state, we just think that's practice. We just think that's true. It should be better or it should stay, you know. And craving for non-existence, and in the, in the simple moment-to-moment way, the way Sameda talks about that, it would really be aversion. It's craving for something to stop existing. <laughs> that knee pain, for example, would that stop existing? So this word craving, they say, I'm not a poly scholar, but that the closest translation is more like thirst. And I like that because it gives a sense of what that quality feels like in the mind and body when it's present. And we can learn to recognize it. It's thirst. It's really like, I've got to have this. Or as it strengthens into, I've got to have it, that's grasping. So that's just the next step in the dependent origination. You know, It's pleasant. We don't notice it's pleasant. The habit of the mind is to lean into it. Yes, I want. This will make me happy. And then it strengthens into grasping holding on, attachment, clinging, grasping. Those are all synonyms for the word in Pali, upadana. So when he's talking about tanha as being the cause of our suffering, he's talking about this quality in the mind, a thirst. And we'll get to exploring that in a minute. But oftentimes people will say, well, what's wrong with wanting to take care of your family? What's wrong with wanting to enjoy nature on a beautiful day? What's wrong? You know, you can go through the whole list. I'm sure you've come up with stuff for yourself. And what's wrong with wanting that? What's wrong with desire? If there was no desire, who would ever do anything? In fact, somebody said to me once in a retreat, if I didn't have desire, what, do I, what would I do without desire? Just sit in my room for the rest of my life? First, let me say, there are other... Um, qualities of mind that can give rise to intention to act other than desire and fear, such as compassion, such as wisdom, such as this next word I'm going to say, which is often translated into desire from the Pali, this word chanda, which is a broader, a different word. It's often translated as desire into English, and tanha is often translated as desire. So that's really confusing. Because chanda, I looked up in the, in the Pali English Dictionary, which is this huge book, and it has two whole pages on chanda. It's one of these describing a quality of mind that's ethically neutral. So it's a quality of mind that is described variously as desire to do, a kind of a, a, a willingness, an energy that comes up to do something, almost an excitement. And it's ethically neutral because depending on what other mental factors come together with it, it could be just kind of a neutral thing. It can be wholesome or it can be unwholesome. So, you know, chanda could come up in, in a wholesome way. It's in one of, one of the wholesome lists of all the lists of the Buddha called the Idipadas, which uh, I'm not going to go into the list, but it's like four bases of power for concentration. And chanda is listed as one of them, so it's very wholesome, and then it's often translated as zeal. This real, you know, arousing of energy to do something, and we would say, yeah, I really want to do it, I have a lot of energy. But you can look and see the quality in your mind, in your heart, and we get to become familiar with when it's wholesome or not. 
When it's wholesome, there's not this sense of contraction. There's not this sense of narrowing. It's not like, yeah, I really want to do it, and if you're in my way, I'm just going to run over you. That's what craving does. Nothing else matters with craving. When it's wholesome, you see more of the big picture. There's some wisdom. So, so chanda is this excitement, this desire to do, and it can be to do wholesome, helpful things in our life, in our regular day-to-day life, and we also often call it desire. But it can also be unwholesome. The word for the hindrance, the first hindrance, is actually sense desire. And the word in Pali for that is kama chanda. So chanda, this desire, this real, you know, wanting excitement about sense pleasures. So chanda, you see how it gets confusing. And you see how we can't just look outward. That's how we get confused. But we can learn to keep getting interested. So like I was saying last night, just get interested in turning the attention into what's the quality in the mind, in the heart right now, in the mind that's aware. And we're doing it not taking it personally, not with judgment, just with interest to see how does the mind work, you know? And so when, you, when you're thinking that... Um, well, play with the difference, for example. Just do a little, a little thought, Gedanken experiment. <laughs> it's German, right? It's German for thinking. Um, so imagine you just want to take a walk. It's a beautiful day. Imagine it is, is Chanda, like this kind of, we won't even say zeal, because that's like so much, but just a real kind of an interest Enthusiasm, there's energy to take a walk. And it's wholesome. There's the energy to take the walk. You're a little tight. It's a beautiful day. You're not like, let me get out. I have the energy. I'm going to take a walk. I'm going to be present. And many people describe that, that actually in taking the walk, their mindfulness, their sense of presence got much more balanced, right? But you could say, I had the desire to take a walk. Fine. That's not unwholesome. That's not tanha. That's not, and you say, what's the suffering in that? There isn't. Don't confuse it with tanha. Tanha is, you're sitting here, it's five minutes into the sitting, you know, I don't really like what's going on now. I want to take a walk. I really want to take a walk. I should have done it before, but I didn't, and now they were talking about walks. It's a beautiful day. It's going to get cold and rainy tomorrow. This is my last chance. I've got to take a walk. I don't care if it's the 9 a.m. sitting and all the teachers are here. I'm out of here. I'm, you know, and, you, and you almost like can't stop yourself. And maybe you don't stop yourself. And you're out taking that walk. And it doesn't matter what. And if you're not looking at the state in the mind, you're just looking at the walk. It bears, it brings this kind of seductive thing. Oh, you'll be so happy if you take this walk. Isn't it? That's the promise of craving. Just do me, do this thing, and you'll be so happy. I remember I read this once from Andrea Levine where she was describing this. Her, the mind says, oh, just eat that second piece of chocolate cake. It'll make you so happy. <laughs> and then you eat it, and then the mind goes, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> but do we pay any attention to the in- fickle, inconstant nature of the mind? No. No. The next time craving comes up, I say, oh, just, you know. Go, yeah, right, that's right. 
this will really make me happy, right? Because we're always looking out at the object. But so did you get a little sense of the difference between chanta and craving? Okay, so think about whatever your idea of enlightenment or the really great state of awareness would be. Can, can you get a sense, and don't tell me you haven't thought about it either. <laughs> can you get a sense of what, let's start with Tana, that's actually easier. Can you get a sense of what craving for that could possibly feel like? I know, yeah, <laughs> thank you, yes. It's subtle. <laughs> but not so, do you, do, you, do you get a sense of how the craving can be there and we don't even notice it because we're so familiar with it. And it has an energy that feels as though it's onward leading into the thing that we want. Just like the chocolate cake or dinner or the walk. Yes, if I lean into it, I'll get it. I'll get it. Almost. I'm almost there. One more breath. If I just sit through two sittings like yesterday, it'll come. And even sometimes we think we know we're striving. I'm looking for striving. I'm not, I'm not striving. And we come out, you know, and like our shoulders are about to break, and we're looking for it, and we don't see it. It's so familiar. But the same, the same idea, well, the idea is probably any idea we have of what awakening would be like is going to be too limited anyway, but just the same sense of having a, a memory or an idea of something that seems wholesome and useful, there can be like a chanda, a wholesome way, a zeal, a willingness that isn't the same as the, the narrowing, the leaning into, the grasping of craving that's trying to make it happen. But it's a sense of, yes, it's, that's what gives us um, inspiration. That's what gives us the faith to do. Faith is often translated, sada is often translated as confidence or willingness to do. And that's a wholesome state. So that chanda can be, yeah, I really like know what it's like when in the mind, the, the mind is clear and the sense of awareness is really trusted. I know that sense of it's not, nothing's a problem. A friend of mine calls it the place of no problem, although it's not a place. Like, I know that. And chanta can be the willingness, yes, well, I I, I can't make it happen because I know it's antithetical. Wanting to make it is exactly what prevents it, what blocks it. But the chanda could be that just the awareness of that possibility, it's not the wanting of clinging, can give me the energy to come back and be here in this moment with the fact that it's not like that right now. It's like this. And being with it like this is actually the only place that purity of mind and freedom can ever be discovered because there is nowhere else. So that's another delusion of craving. It's always looking to the next moment to be better. And there's nothing but here. So when you find you're looking towards the object, whether it's a sense pleasure or a state, just turn around and see. And we can learn to, to explore for ourselves the quality in the mind. It's not personal. It's just the nature of craving is to crave. The nature of mindfulness is to be mindful. It's not like you are personally a failure because craving keeps coming up. It's 
It's the way things work when there's not awareness. There's three movements in the unfolding process of insight. That's the way Dhikkhu Bodhi describes it. But I find it helpful to look at, especially in terms of craving, not just sense pleasures, all the cravings. Because the Buddha was, he was just, he was brilliant, as Winnie said the other night. I mean, amazing. Talks about gratification in craving and sense pleasures and views, whatever, the danger and the escape. And our process of insight, we can consciously explore these three areas. And I think what I think is so brilliant is that he includes gratification. So in terms of craving and in terms of it strengthening to grasping, I'm sure you're aware he talks about four areas that we really get involved in grasping a lot and don't recognize it. The obvious first one is sense pleasures. The next one is views and opinions, and this is huge, which moves into um, views is ditti. And as you know, right view or wise view, samaditti, is the first step of the Eightfold Path. Wrong view, michaditti, you find that a lot in, in the suttas we're talking about, like when Guy was, was reading that sutta where he's talking about you misguided man, you know, saying whatever it was, I forget what it was, but you misguided man, that would have been wrong view, right? But attachment to any view, even right view, attachment to it, leads us into delusion because of the narrowing, distorting quality that attachment brings to consciousness. But there's views, and then there's Sakaya Ditti, the personality view, or identity view. And the third is is attachment to rites and rituals, or thinking that if I do a certain thing in a certain way, that'll bring me peace. I mean, that was back from the Buddha's time when and for example, a lot of the Hindu Brahmins thought that if they bathed in a particular river, that would wash away all their previous bad actions, all their previous bad karma, that kind of right and ritual. So none of us think anything like that, do we? So he talks about, before, this is the Buddha, before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, it occurred to me, What is the gratification in the world? What is the danger in the world? What is the escape from the world? Then it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification in the world. See, I love that because as as Guy said, I think in his first talk, when the Buddha talked about happiness, there is happiness of sense pleasures, of being with family, of even the happiness of higher states, that's the gratific- there's gratification in that. And so to try, sometimes we try to jump over that and think, oh, to, to let go of craving means you know, almost like we're afraid of the pleasant. You know, either we love craving or we're afraid of it and we're afraid of the pleasant. You say, no, there's gratification. And we need to recognize that, not pretend it's not gratification or there's something wrong with us if we're gratified. And, because if we get into that denial we're just getting further and further away from seeing. So we have to allow with awareness that there's gratification. That the world is impermanent, bound up with unreliability and subject to change. This is the danger in the world. And the abandoning of desire and lust 
for the world. This is the escape from the world. So the world, you know, he's really talking about the six sense experiences because that's all we can ever experience. He's not saying hate everything and get away from it. He's really saying the abandoning of the desire, the craving, the tanha for experience. And again, we hear, oh, but that's like pushing everything away. That's renunciation. That's like, what would life just be? Some dull, gray mass of nothing? But that's not. When, and it's like when it, things are seen accurately, when the danger is seen accurately, the craving naturally releases because it doesn't make sense. And what we're left with, as I said before, is, is peace. There's a, a quotation from Nisargadatta. Where it is? Somewhere. He says, Do not be afraid of freedom from desire and fear. It enables you to live a life so different from all you know, so much more alive and interesting that truly by seeming to lose all, you gain all. It's just a different kind of happiness that the craving mind can't know. So the danger really is not that there's gratification. That's fine. It's that we rely on the gratification that really in some way, of course, we attach to it. We don't know it's going to change. We're all aware of that. We've talked about that a lot. And even though intellectually we know it, and intellectually we also know that even though we know it, we still go ahead and grasp at stuff that we know is going to change, right? Like that mental state you had that was so pleasant earlier. Or the chocolate cake. Or your relationship. Or your body's not hurting tonight. Or whatever. The danger is, though, that in the gratification, if we're not mindful, if we're not just aware of how the gratification is, we really fall into it, we rely on it, that becomes, in the delusion mind that's fed by craving, that becomes the only way we know to be happy. You know, that's the the seduction of craving. It says, as I was saying before, just follow me, it'll make you happy, and it distorts our perception. So just with sense pleasures, haven't you noticed that when you really have that, that thirst for something, that the mind's eye, the perception of it, perception is just the recognition. It, it seems so much better than it ever really is. Every really, really wanted, like, go back to a piece of cake. And you spent, like, a whole time really wanting it. Say you have a piece of cake from three days ago stashed in your room. Already it's disgusting, right? Stashed in your room, you're craving, 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 finally you go back and eat it. Does it come up to expectations? How many fantasies have you had since you've been here about future great things that are going to happen? Has anybody had any fantasies about any? No, yeah. They're great, aren't they? I mean, it's all going to be wonderful. One time, one retreat, I, I can't say I kept track of all of them, that would be ridiculous, but... There were a few that kept coming. And I really kept, when I go back to this situation, it's going to be like this, and it'd be so great. And then, oh, no, no, it's going to be like this. And I finally realized, no matter what, how many fantasies I had, how many different ones, the one thing I knew was it would, wouldn't be like any of them. And that's true. You can't ever know how it's going to be. And it may be better, but mostly, mostly it doesn't live up to the promise craving tells us. <laughs> 
but we don't notice that. The Tibetans have a great saying that craving puts feathers on the object, dresses it up, makes it look just so wonderful. You know, when you have a crush on somebody, just there, oh, they're the most fascinating person until the crush goes away, right? They go, what was I thinking? <laughs> that person? No, no, no. They must have done something different. They must have really changed, you know? Perception, recognition, completely unreliable, but we totally believe our perception. So the danger is we really believe this seduction of craving. I was had this little little example discussion with a very wise friend. We were talking about craving. <clears throat> we were joking. He was sort of joking. And he really likes cookies, this guy. Just a couple of cook just a couple of cookies in the afternoon. Very restrained, very balanced, but gotta have his two cookies in the afternoon. And so we were together and joking about this and I, and he said, There's no suffering in this. There's a desire, I see it, I eat my cookie, it's really good, and then the desire's gone and I'm happy. Where's the suffering in that? Yeah, and that's how it works, isn't it? And I said, yeah, you don't have to deal with the suffering until you can't get a cookie. And he goes, oh, I can always get a cookie. <laughs> that's exactly, that's exactly where we're caught, whatever it is. <laughs> So substitute whatever for cookie. And not just sense pleasures, but states of mind, the way our life's going to be, views and opinions, all of that, how I'm going to be a better person, whatever it is. Instead, we don't have to get rid of the cookie either. He doesn't have to stop eating the cookies. But just turn around and notice when that quality of craving is in our minds, Turn around and explore it, to get to, not to get rid of it, but to see what's the freedom from craving. It's not that we have to get rid of all the cookies in the world. I mean, we'd probably just crave more. What's the freedom from craving? Just turn around and say, oh, craving's like this. Explore it. How does it feel in the body? What's the effect in the mind? Is it actually, does it feel like a, a wholesome, happy state? Does it feel like a suffering state? And look for yourself, because it doesn't matter a damn if you believe what I say. It's only when awareness sees things as they are. Like, ah, oh, the craving, we're walking along, things are very peaceful, up in the mind it pops. If I, if I go down to tea a little bit early, maybe I can get the good seat. How relaxed is the rest of your walking? You're still just walking. It's like, oh, I got no, no, I'm, I'm renouncing. I'm renouncing the seat. You may renounce the seat, but that doesn't matter if you don't turn around and look at the craving. We can renounce the seat and walk back and forth with, you know, steam coming out of our ears, out of craving, and not notice it. So turn out cravings like this. Sensations in the body, constriction in the mind. I mean, that's how it is for me. You look for you. And it's just like this, and that's okay. You can be with it. Mental state, physical expression. It's nothing but, there's nothing but Mental states and physical, nama, rupa, that's all that's ever happening. It can be craving or it can be joy or it can be boredom. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Awareness is just noticing that. That's okay. At some point, I promise, at some point, if you're just walking with it, it will, the craving will dissolve because everything does. I'm not saying it won't come back, but it will dissolve. 
Just keep walking after it dissolves. Not, oh, yes, I got rid of craving. I'm so great. That's a new one. But just, just keep noticing how it feels when it dissolves. Like, ah, oh, now it's nice. Now, if we could just notice, why is it nice? Not, how can I capitalize on it? But just, <laughs> now it's nice. Because it's peaceful. Why is it peaceful? Because craving isn't present. It's the craving that narrows and constricts. As the Buddha said, craving and, and um, aversion are makers of measurement. And I can actually feel how the mind, you know, the, that meditation this morning, that moving in the direction of just the, the vastness, the limits, just the potential of not feeling anything to do with, with space or boundaries or anything. Notice, did you notice how when wanting something comes in, Fixation, that's the word the Tibetans use, grasping. And we do, it's like contraction, expansion, contraction, expansion. Kind of like the movement of life, isn't it? You know, but just notice that. Just notice how it feels. Notice how it functions when cravings in the mind. And have you ever noticed when you want something, how it affects the way you perceive other people, <laughs> other things in the way? I've used this example before, but it's a good one. When I was on a, on a plane... I fly a lot, and I was on a, um, just, we were just loading, and I, I always sit on the aisle, and it was an overnight flight, and I can never sleep on overnight flights, and so I'm always really wasted when I get there, and I don't like it. So I was sitting on, the, on my seat there in the aisle, and the planes are always crowded these days, and people were coming, people were coming, and it was getting pretty close to when the doors were going to close, and I suddenly noticed that I was in a row with nobody else. And I went from just sitting there, la, 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 to, oh, I'm in a row with nobody else. And the craving really came, I could lie down if no one comes. That would make such a difference. And my mind just went like that. And then what had been, I was a little spaced out, but relatively peaceful before. Then it was like tight and contracted. And every new person who started walking down the aisle, <laughs> you know, no, keep going, keep going, keep going. Thank God, you know. <laughs> Every single person. I couldn't relax. I really, the enemy. Oh, they went by. Okay, may you be happy. Oh, look, the enemy. Okay. <laughs> I wish I were exaggerating. <laughs> I did, though, and this is one of the joys of practicing mindfulness, I did actually notice what I was doing, you know, what the mind was doing, and the suffering of it, basically. Not like, oh, you're a bad person, but this is really suffering. This is the suffering of wanting. And so I really did start actually just uh, noticing it, noticing my reaction, and actually doing metta to the people that came in a real way, not the kind of bypass I'm pretending, but just to, to shift the, to change the channel, you know. And I honestly don't remember whether... I got to lie down or not. I honestly don't remember. Probably not, because you never get to. But I like it that I don't remember, because it means I really did shift the channel then at that time. But that's a good example, I think, of a very simple experience and how craving completely changes the dynamic of how we're perceiving experience and how we feel. It feels lousy. We overlook that. We get what we want. We feel great. So then we think craving's a good thing. So... The escape, then, isn't necessarily 
in fact, it's got nothing to do with getting what we want. The escape is that recognizing what's happening with mindfulness wisdom at the place that it's arising in the mind right now. And often, the craving just dissolves. Even if it doesn't, it's that unhooking of it being about me. Because craving is, of course, about me. It's always about me. That's really the delusion that's the source of all the suffering. And there's the mindfulness wisdom of craving is like this. In that moment of just recognizing just another arising experience, that suffering of it being about me is gone. The narrowing is gone. It's just, just what it is. In that moment, there's a moment of freedom from craving, heart-mind, of non-clinging. That's the direction of escape. But the habits are so deep. This is the Buddha talking about, in that sutta, I'm sure many of you are aware of the two darts where he talks about, you know, a man's hit with a dart. It's, it's like an arrow and it hurts. And that's one dart, and that's just normal. And that an unawakened person then gets all upset and cries and beats his breast and laments and gets all upset, and that's like shooting yourself with a second dart, right? And that that's what we're always doing, shooting ourselves with a second dart. And an awakened person, they're shot with the first dart, and then they just don't create anything around it. But this, I, this part I find really interesting as he goes on talking about a, an awakened person. So having been touched, you've been hit with a dart, having been touched by that painful feeling, he resists and resents that painful feeling. And so in a person who so resists the painful feeling, and we do, right? You know, just, no, this shouldn't be here. The underlying tendency of resistance of painful feeling comes to underlie his mind, comes, becomes a habit, a tendency. And under the impact of that painful feeling, he then proceeds to look for, to enjoy sensual happiness. Why does he do so? Because an untaught worldling does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. That just touches me. I mean, that's so poignant to me and explains a world that is unpleasant. We don't know any other way. Someone who hasn't ever really doesn't know any other way out of the unpleasant except to go get something pleasant right now. And the stronger we want it, the more, you know, the more we're going to be completely unregarding the effects it has on us on others. We just, I've got to get that painful, that pleasant thing right now to get out of this painful feeling. So in him who enjoys sensual happiness, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feelings comes to his mind. He does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. So in him who lacks that knowledge, the underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral feelings comes to underlie his mind. So when he experiences a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, or a neutral feeling, he feels as if one fettered by it, one chained by it, you know, like we're the victims of these feelings. So, I don't know, that just really speaks to me. And it just, I feel so kind of sad for the habits of so many people in the world, and at the same time I feel so immensely grateful that we all have 
had the possibility to see that there is actually another way, that we have a path, that we have a possibility, you know, that the way out of the suffering, the resistance, the painful, of the painful feelings isn't just to mindlessly follow craving. And that craving might be for chocolate cake or for sex or for concentration or for enlightenment or for, you know, violence or for whatever. But following the craving is just that habit. That willingness, the ability, which is coming from wisdom and faith and um, energy and all the factors, and you all have it, you know, tons of it. You've been here all this time. That willingness to go, whoa, what, what's happening right now? That willingness to say maybe the mindfulness, the wisdom, the willingness to just turn around and look at what's happening in the mind now. That the way out of this confusion isn't by rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but by cultivating, by allowing the quality of mind to become pure. Not to feed the craving, not to feed the aversion, but to actually feed the awareness, the mindfulness. And that's just by our willingness to turn around and meet what's happening. That's all. That's all we have to do. Over and over and over and over. The wisdom really grows by itself, which is so amazing. If you feel like you have to create the wisdom. No, we can't. That's more wanting. Wanting gets so subtle on this level. Bhava tanha, craving for states, craving for wisdom, and thinking, I'm the one who should do it. No, we don't have to. It's actually a huge relief. You just notice what's happening. Notice what's happening. The mind, oh, but if I do this, oh, that feels like craving. How does that feel? Just feel it. Notice it. Notice it in the body. Notice it in the mind. Notice the thoughts it sends up. Notice how you can't stand it. Notice how that passes. Notice how the whole thing passes. And then there's a moment of peace, a wakefulness. Then there's a moment of boredom. Then there's a new craving. But it's a new one. And it doesn't matter. It's just another arising experience we can meet with awareness. So that's the escape, really. And in terms of the Buddha talked about there, the um, gratification, danger, and escape in terms of the feelings, in terms of Vedana, I just want to say a word about that. We've talked about it a lot, and a lot of you talk about it. I know you're aware of the, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality. Remember, as Vedna, as Sally talked about, it's one of the aggregates. It's a mental quality. So when there's any sense door experience, you know, hearing. Okay, consciousness just knows hearing. The perception would be bell. You know, that's just the memory of what comes up if I rang the bell. It would be bell. The Vedna isn't something that the sound possesses. It's not a thing in the object. It's a felt quality in the mind. It's really an activity in the mind, almost like a subtle movement, almost of liking or disliking or neutrality and experiencing it like that. By the time we've said or labeled pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that's actually perception again. The perception of that was unpleasant. But I know I find for myself in the way we talk about it, oh, 
that's an unpleasant sound. This is a pleasant taste. This is an unpleasant sensation. It's as if it's a quality that's possessed by that object and forgetting that it's actually an activity, very, very subtle activity in the mind arising with each sense contact, with each perception. And so I say because to actually... When we realize we're, we're, you know, getting into a whole reaction based on pleasant or based on unpleasant, but let's stick with pleasant since we're talking about, since we're talking about um, tanha. As I was saying, there's nothing wrong with the pleasant experience, but turn around and notice how much of pleasant experience that we crave, what we're really craving is that pleasant feeling. As Ajahn Buddhadasa again says, you know, he says, really start to notice pleasant feeling and how, he says, 95% of all the decisions you make in your life are about how to get more pleasant feeling or based on what's going towards the pleasant feeling. And then turn around and look at that feeling, that sense in the mind itself. It's so incredibly ephemeral. It's like so nothing. When I look, I go, how can... I keep creeping in that I'm basing so much, and I'm not just going because Buddha Dasa said that, basing so much of uh, decisions, or when I get caught in craving, the mind leaning towards, you know, I was talking the other night about trying to practice and ever so subtly trying to just make it a little better. And that's all about pleasant feeling. But when you actually get it better, oh, now it's like, don't stay in the object. Turn around and notice the pleasant feeling. It's like that. It's just gone, 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 gone. I was having a, and I was went on this last retreat, and it was some 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 personality thing. I don't even remember what, feeling bad about myself, blah blah blah, and noticing, you know, no, just noticing the feelings and the story. I wasn't so much in this story, and then, I just there was a shift. I said, oh, I feel better about myself, you know. And then I thought, well, what's wrong with feeling better about myself? Because it came, no, you shouldn't. It's not about feeling better about yourself. I said, what's wrong with feeling better about myself? And I was like, nothing. It's pleasant. There's nothing wrong with feeling better about ourselves. It's not like we prove anything by being filled with self-hatred. But then I saw what the place is not to stop there. Let me explore the actual pleasant feeling of feeling better about myself. And it's like nothing. Okay, so I felt better about myself. Pleasant feeling gone next moment, you know. Do I want to spend my whole life trying to rearrange my thoughts so I can feel better about myself in pursuit of pleasant feeling? No. I'm not saying we don't want to switch our habits of self-hatred or harming ourselves. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying let's just not stop there. Say, okay, good enough. Keep exploring. Explore how much of pleasant feeling is running. Are we getting caught in craving? And just just stop and look at what is it. Maybe you'll look at it and go, yeah, this is great. It's worth worth running my life on. Maybe you'll say, I can't even find it. What the heck is she talking about? But just have a look. Have a look and see. And then see when... There's just the piece of it can be pleasant, it can be unpleasant, it can be neutral. We all have moments like that. Again, not so much noticing the object, but notice that quality of non-reactivity, of wakeful stillness in the mind, 
that's not toing and froing, needing any experience to make itself okay. Hmm. Well, I just want to mention Sakaya Ditti. I can't go through all the four kinds of grasping. Sakaya Ditti is personality view, and it's basically, well, a view is really when we take any perception. A perception is just a recognition, right? Like, that's a bell. I'm talking. You look at me, you go, that's Carol, you know. If your perception's distorted by wanting or greed or delusion, you might look and go, who is that, you know, or... Just when you think you see me, but it's really Sally or something like that, and you just, there was a distortion. The perception was inaccurate. Happens all the time. Well, what we perceive, and this is from the Buddha, what we perceive, we think about. What we think about, we get all confused with assumptions and comparisons, and this is what turns into papancha. You know, all this whole story that we make up. And then from that story, we develop a view. This is really how it is. And we attach to that view, and from that view, we then act. Politics is a great example of that. I'm not going to go into politics, but, you know, we think my view is right and that one's wrong. So what I love to play with is to see when perception, what comes from the perception, and then where you see the perception is really wrong and what comes from that. It just shakes up the solidity, and I love that. So I'll give you a simple example. Just when I was in Burma now, I was in the monastery I was staying. There's one place where there's a, a big Bodhi tree, kind of tree the Buddha sat under, and uh, kind of in a big well. And there's a path walking up to it. So I was walking up to the path, and I saw a nun walking around with her hands like this. And my first thought was, you know, I saw this nun walking around. This is that respect kind of that they always, that always do in terms of from the Buddha statue to people. So it's a kind of respect, and I thought she was probably just respecting walking around the Bodhi tree. So my first perception was that, and it was pleasant. And I thought, oh, isn't that lovely? There's so much faith here. And then my mind kept running. This turned into Papancha. I go, but it's just a tree. I mean, it's not even the tree the Buddha sat on. It's just a tree. So she's walking around this tree. I mean, is faith like that really useful? I mean, is that, how do I feel about that kind of faith? That's just, and it's just this whole thing, you know. And it was getting unpleasant. I said, how do I even feel this country? is so... And I kept walking up. I got up to her. She was texting. (laughs) (laughs) So first, I really loved it. I laughed. Then my mind goes, what's a nun doing texting? (laughs) Then it went off into the whole other one, you know? And it's like, this is samsara. This is what we're doing all the time. This is how we're creating... And I can't go into it anymore because time's up. But that's how we're creating the sense of self. Moment after moment after moment. Some perception comes up, a sensation in the knee, and the mind goes, my knee is killing me, right? And from that, whichever way it goes, all of that is what's called Sakaya Ditti, personality view. As Buddha Dasa said, again, the sense of self is merely a condition that arises when there's grasping or clinging in the mind. That's all. It arises, when the clinging evaporates, so does the sense of self. It arises many, many times in a day. Because we don't look, we assume a steady state. Coming and going all the time. So I just believe you with that, to explore that. How is it different for a Buddha? He explains in his own, in his own words, I like this a lot, with perception, 
The way a Buddha is different is he doesn't add anything extra. This is the Buddha. Thus, bhikkhus, the Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight. In fact, they're seeing. He's not conceiving me seeing that. They're seeing. That's what's happening. He does not conceive of an unseen. He does not conceive of a thing to be seen. He does not conceive about a seer. And he goes through that with sounds, with uh, all the sense doors, including the mind. He does not conceive of a cognizable thing as apart from cognition. He does not conceive of something uncognized. He does not conceive of a thing worth cognizing. He does not conceive about one who cognizes. And then he says, thus, bhikkhus, the Tathagata is such like in regard to all phenomena, seen, heard, sensed, and cognized. It's just this, nothing else. It's so simple, we can't stand it. We can't. You know, the mind wants more. So I'll just end with this lovely poem I'm sure you've heard from a Japanese nun. Tagitsu, that's her name. Tagitsu saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean on at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.